We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. We're turning again to James chapter 5. And <coughs> take another look at what we see here. And I'll just begin, <coughs> excuse me, I'll begin by reading the first part of what is in the chapter here. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupt, corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have reaped up, you have reaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies. You might see those in your copy. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, we talked about that in this section some last week. And we last week said, well, the way that he starts out this section, come now, you rich. That's a little different than what he said when he said, brethren. And interestingly, after this section, he uses the word brethren five more times. So he is giving a message to brethren, but here he's talking about rich. And as we said before, some have different views as to what specifically or to whom is he specifically referring to or directing these words. Because the things that are missed here as to what these rich ones are doing seems wholly incompatible with something that someone would do who is, who is one of the brethren. And so some people don't find that to be a compatible situation that you can have that. But I think to think that, so if he wasn't speaking to his audience as he identified as brethren in this particular section, then what actually was he doing? He was writing to them, right? So how would you, how would you handle that? 
and see right into his audience, but he just throws in one section for the non-believers who are not a part of the audience to, that he is addressing. I don't take it that way. But I will say this, that I understand that there are certain things that are incompatible with what Christian people ought to be doing. But I don't know what the absolute limits are into what, as to what an actual Christian person can do. I haven't found the list in Scripture which says as to sinful acts that a person can do, Christians are exempted from committing these particular ones. <laughs> Except for if they're really a true Christian, they can't just ultimately deny Christ and cast them aside. That's not a true Christian who could do that. So, I think it's good to understand that what he's saying here is that at least there are among them rich people, some of whom probably have done some of these things. And as a corporate group, they probably have done all of them. Not every person who's rich did all of them, but probably all of them have been done. So that provokes, that, that provides a warning. I know that people think about some of the things that happened in our history. And they say, well, a Christian person couldn't have done those things in our history, some sad parts of our history. If they were Christian, they couldn't have done that. I don't know that that's correct. In fact, I'm sure it's not. <laughs> so what does that mean? Yes, ma'am. That's a, that, that is a possibility uh, that <clears throat> of that. Someone also suggested that notion that it might be the idea of a taking it as a group, as a category, rich as opposed to individuals, <laughs> and that sort of thing. But I think the major point is is to be careful about how we think about what we do and what we have, and what is God's plan and program for what we have, and to not uh, take the wrong approach uh, to those, those riches that God had given. See, we talked about in chapter 4, at the end of it, about those who were, they were concerned about riches, because they were going to go to some place, and they were going to make a profit, and they were going to come back. So, the kind of mindset that could be could have been theirs if they had successfully done that could re well lead into this. So there are dangers that come along with uh, excessive 
wealth. They're dangerous. They come along with that. Sometimes people who have excessive wealth think they should control everybody and control everything. Sometimes people with excessive wealth are minded to just to be indolent and to be lazy and to be all kinds of bad things just because they have the wealth to do or not do, to treat people however they want and all that. So those kinds of problems can result from wealth. And so James is saying here that there is an end to the way that they practiced with their wealth. And so rather than to be glorious in it, they should be wailing and weeping because there is a result that's coming as to how and what they're doing. There's a result that's coming for, from that. So, oh, that's a wrong chapter. So he says here, now, the way that this next part is rendered, he says that the riches are corrupted. And there is some discussion as to how that is to be understood. But are corrupted is as a condition that they've had this, they've accumulated it, and it's now in a state of corruption. That the, uh, the garments are moth-eaten. We talked about that, moth-eaten garments. Garments, you know, they were very important for them in the time that James was writing. And wealth, many times, was tied up into garments. But for the garments to become moth-eaten means that they're not serving their proper purpose. The garments are not serving their proper purpose. They're not being used for the proper purpose. So the moth gets them. The silver and gold, its value haven't been eroded. And so even those things which retained their value, had lost value for these ones. And then he goes on. The, I guess we could say kind of really heartbreaking is this notion that a Christian person, much less, well, any person, but much less a Christian person, could do the thing that's described in verse 4. And we mentioned that before as well. The wages of the laborers. So people were working for them. People who needed to have their pay to sustain themselves and their families. But these rich, and the way he's describing them, are the kinds of people who kept back by fraud the wages of the people who worked. Now we know those kinds of things can happen among us as well. I remember from way back home and some of the migrants who would come in and many times they were not properly shall I use the word remunerated <laughs> to use a big word. Many times they were not. And I do recall that one of those, at least one of the contractors, were actually was convicted in federal court for having engaged in slave labor. <laughs> now, I don't know anything about whether these people profess to be Christian or not, but what I do know is that the migrants were mistreated. They weren't getting their proper wages. 
That's the kind of thing he's talking about here. To have the people who need to work for you, and they're not paid them. How awful is that? Well, I'll tell you. See, they can look at that and say, okay, well, from their own perspective, the rich people who did this, they're not thinking about the idea or the fact that God is aware and is paying attention to everything going on and that he cares about those people and their wages. And when they cried out, he heard them. If they had been mindful of that, they would have taken a different approach. And so the idea is that James is saying, learn from this. And I think we can properly think about learning from it even if we don't go to the extent that they did in all of this. But we can think about how is it that our thinking might be moving or shifted or too far in the direction of the mode of thought that these folks had. And I think that's something worthy to be considered. So the, the, the cries to the Lord, they, the Lord heard their cries you know, the most confident thing that I think we can think about is, is God hearing the prayers and responding to them and meeting the needs of those people who are crying out for help to him. And so he, he heard. And they cried out. The sin of these people was such that the Lord was paying attention to it. Their sin, crying out. One of the things that kind of reminds us of is how the sin that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah was so egregious. It was crying out. <laughs> in Genesis 18:20, it says, the Lord said the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so blatant that I must go down and see if they are as wicked as the outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. So God is paying attention. And he knows what's going on. And now in verse 5 it says, as to these rich ones again. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. That's how they were living. Think of that. They're living in pleasure and luxury, but the people who are doing the work for them in their fields are not getting what they need just to, for the sustenance of life. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. It's almost like I think the idea of, you know, how the cattle are being fattened. They're not aware that they're being fattened for slaughter. <laughs> These rich people are going on like that. They're, as in the day of slaughter, they're carrying on. They're preparing themselves for a harsh and severe judgment, but they're not aware of what the, what's going on there. You have condemned and murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Well, how can they... You know, they, they are doing what they need to do, these ones. But it said condemned and murdered. These are strong terms. And really it means that they really very severely mistreated the people. <laughs> they really harmed them. 
And there's really not much that people could do about it. You know, like the migrant workers in the fields, you know. They pretty much had to just take whatever it was that they were given. They, they didn't have much power to do much else. So therefore, in verse 8, he says, be patient. Now he says, brethren. <laughs> now he's getting folks again to say, okay, brethren, think of yourselves as those people who really belong to Christ. What do you need to do in light of what I'm telling you? Not just here, but throughout the whole book. He says there, be patient. Until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. So when is the Lord coming? To be alert and ready, prepared. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. There seems to be something unique about farmers. I think some people couldn't do well as farmers because it requires a certain level of patience <laughs> if you're going to be a farmer. The farmer prepares the soil. They put the crops in or the seeds or whatever it is, and maybe they're not waiting for the rains like they're there, you know, the rains in the early season, the rains in the later season. Maybe they have an irrigation system. But even that, they still have to be patient because the seeds have to germinate, and the farmer can't germinate them, <laughs> right? He can't. The seeds, they have to grow and reach uh, production. They have to get through the, if there are problems with disease and all that, they have to get, escape that in order to be able to produce. This, the farmer can't make that happen. They have certain things they can do to try to assist the process to help it to be successful. But they can't cause the crop to grow. But who does that? That's God's work. It's important to understand that. So that's what a farmer does. So he says, be patient. Establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And some people say, well, what is at hand? You know, the idea that some of the early people thought that Christ was going to return again pretty soon. We think about the imminent return of Christ. We talk about We teach that here. The imminent return of Christ. But I would suggest that the word imminent and immediate are not the same word. They don't have the same meaning. Imminent is the idea, carries with it the idea that he could occur, it could occur anytime. There's nothing preventing it. So as we understand in our system of doctrine here, there is no other event that needs to happen before, you know, the, uh, Lord's return, or the rapture as we call it. So he says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It doesn't mean it's going to be immediate, but it can be. Do not grumble against one another, brethren. Grumbling. You know, that reminds us again of what he's talked about in chapter 4, about the, how to think in terms of the brethren. Do not grumble lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke 
in the name of the Lord as we examine as an example of suffering and patience. So suffering and patience. It's hard to be suffering and patient. When somebody is suffering, some people when they're suffering, they make it very difficult, not just for them, but for anybody who comes into their presence. Unbearably, so sometimes. But he says, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, think about them as examples of patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the patience, of the perseverance of Job, and seeing the intended, the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So Job, Job, we all know about Job. We can marvel at the patience of Job. That didn't mean that that doesn't mean that Job didn't get frustrated, and that it didn't have some outbursts. But you know, Job said, even in the midst of all his trials. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Patience. Job said, I know that my Redeemer shall stand upon the earth. I know these things. So even with the midst of the frustrations, we can't, I think, appreciate what it would mean to live like Job lived for a year. But he's given to us an, an example of patience. He says, be patient, consider Job. With Job, as we read a, a study about him, we get to see what the end was. Job didn't get to see that before he got there. So he set forth as an example. And part of what it says to us is, consider the end. Because... You know what the scripture says about those who are his? All things work together for good. Who, to them who love God, who are called according to his purposes. That there is an end. That God is going to reconcile things. He's going to. But between now and then, maybe it's in difficult days. Hard days, tough days, days that we wish we didn't have to see. But sometimes we do see them. But God is compassionate and merciful, and we have to continue to remember that. In verse 12, but above all things, my brethren, my brethren. Now he said, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, Swearing. Why would they need to swear with an oath? Well, you know, we can easily see an implication that, well, usually they're not telling the truth, so this time they are, and so they're going to give, say it with an oath. Now, I've read some commentators, some people have gotten caught up on this idea, of uh, the whole idea where he says, do not swear. And so they take it to say, well, you know, if you're going into a courtroom 
and they want you to swear to tell the truth, hold the truth, and not swear the truth. So help you God. That some people say, well, I can't do that. Scripture forbids it. But then, really, that's really not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the not a court proceeding. <laughs> that's not the context. But people in their exchanges with one another, swearing, using the God, Lord's name in vain. Scripture says we must not use the Lord's name in vain. And to swear by God to say, well, you know, I'm, you, can be, you can trust what I'm saying because I'm swearing by God's name is an offense to God. And then obviously to do it in the name of some other thing, as some other false god, is also an offense to God. And so he says, just like your yes be yes and your no no. In other words, be the kind of person who, when you say a thing, you don't need to embellish it by saying, I swear, or something like that. But just speak the truth. And if you're in a court and they ask you to swear to tell the truth, it's okay to say, yes, I do. <laughs> right? That's my understanding, anyway. Some people may not agree with that, but that's the way I see it. And then it goes into verse 13. He said, well, he, is there any suffering among you? Let him pray. So he talks about the suffering. And is there anyone cheerful among you? Let him sing psalms. Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And this is interesting as well because it talks about different situations of life that people might be involved, might be in. And he says there, the suffering, the cheerful, the sick. That there are proper responses to those things. And so throughout our lives, we all have had times of these and will of being in a state of suffering, a state of cheerfulness, a state of sickness. And so what do we do? Well, he says here what to do in those circumstances. And then pray, see, if anyone is suffering, to pray. Prayer is important. We talk about it. It's talked about often times here in this church. You hear it all the time of how important prayer is that we have to continually stress that. So what is prayer? Prayer is coming before God with our hearts set on him and then making the petitions of our hearts verbalized uh, before him. It doesn't mean that we have to be sounding out. We can be praying without sounding out the words, but we, it's to God. We're looking to him. So anyone you're suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Sing psalms. Psalms of joy and pleasure. Anyone sick to call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And then in verse 15, it says, The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. 
there are different ways that that's taken as well. But it's not a blanket thing to say. It's not what. It's not proper to take this as to say, well, if anybody's sick, all they have to do is call for the elders, they'll know and they'll pray, and then the person will be well again. That's, that's not what he said. But to call the elders and to have them pray, anoint them in the name of the Lord, they pray of faith to save the sick. And then it says in the last part of 15, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It, do, it does suggest scripture where we know that some sickness is related to sin. We get that in 1 Corinthians 11. That people were weak and sickly. Some were dying. Why? Because of sin. Right? So they can be free from that. Because if they get right and make a proper confession of that sin, it can be given, forgiven. And they can be for, uh, saved from that result of uh, being in that sinful state. In 16 it says, confess your faults, uh, confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another that you may be helped. And then it says, the effective and fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. So praying for one another, that's an important thing, and confessing trespasses to one another, that's important. But then it says the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous person. The idea is that prayer can be not effective and not accomplished. Now that's an interesting thought. We don't want to pray a prayer that's not going to be effective. So how do we do that? So we need to be then alert and to be asking God's help to keep us in a frame of heart and mind so that when we pray, our prayers are received as from a person who is righteous and we can count on him not to give us what we want but to give us the right answer. (laughs) So we have to be mindful of that when we're praying. Because oftentimes we, in our minds we know what we want. Somebody's sick. And we know we want them to be brought back to vitality of life. We know that. But what we don't know is, is if that's the best from God's viewpoint. And so we try to learn to say, Lord, help us to want the outcome that you deem best. Lord, will you give us the outcome that you deem best? Sometimes it's hard to pray that. Because we're afraid that the one he deems best is not going to be the one that we were hoping for. But it works out sometimes just that way. 
Now he brings in Elijah. And it's really remarkable what he says here. Because it talks about Elijah praying. And then the rain stopped. That's what it says here in verse 17. But he was a man with a nation like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And it prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and earth produced its fruit. He was a man like us. So that means that prayer can have an effect. It can produce a result. Brethren, verse 19, is any among you, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. If anyone wanders from the truth, be mindful of that and pray to the end that the person will be restored to the truth and will come to it. So be a person who prays the effectual and fervent prayer of the righteous. So when we get ready to pray, we ask our, the Lord to search our hearts and minds and see if there's any iniquity in us that will prevent the prayer from having its proper effect. All the while knowing that God is almighty, he's all-powerful, that he hears the cries of his people, and he helps them. And so that's all for today. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to, to work in us. We know we need you to mold and to shape us through your word. That's why we pay attention to it. And ask for the Spirit of God to help us as we continue along this journey. Know full well that it's a journey and that at some point we will come to the end of it. So help us, Lord, we pray. In the name of Christ, our Savior, with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for your kind attention.